Good evening, uh, 64 podcast fans. I'm David Visgon, your longtime host, and today I will be recapping the first three games of the World Chess Championship 2021. Um, the games have been very interesting, and uh, there's a lot to talk about. I'll just give a disclaimer. I'm not really trying to do this from the theory perspective or trying to review specific moves or variations. I think that's kind of impossible in a podcast format. Um, I really kind of want to talk more about ideas and and kind of uh, match strategy. So I'm hoping this won't actually take that long. Um, nevertheless, let me know what you think. You can uh, just at me on Twitter, um, at 64podcast, if you've listened and you like what you heard and you're on Twitter and you just want to give me some feedback or leave a review and uh, on, on Apple Podcasts, for example. Um, but I'm really excited to kind of try this out. This is completely new kind of content with me. I'm I'm totally alone, so I don't really know how this is going to go, but I'm hoping it's at least going to be uh, interesting. Um, and before I continue, there's just two things I'd like to say. First of all, uh, I actually have uh, two Patreon subscribers now. Um, shout out to uh, Paul Harbright um, from Australia, who is my first platinum patron. Uh, if you want to join the club, if you want to support uh, the work I do, um, just check me out at patreon.com slash 64 podcast. <laughs> and, um, the other thing I want to say is that we recently reached 200 followers on Spotify. So I'm really grateful for that. If you ha- haven't followed yet on Spotify and you use Spotify or Apple podcasts, um, please subscribe. It just helps a ton with the algorithm. So I guess we'll just get right into it. Um, and the first thing I want to kind of talk about is, uh, kind of match strategy, because I think what a lot of people um, should know about like a World Chess Championship is that it's not really, there are a lot of draws. There hasn't been a decisive game in five years. And I think that kind of puts a lot of people off. New fans, we have to remember, of course, that there are a huge influx of fans since the last time there was a decisive game in the 2016 World Championship against Karyakin. That was a little over five years, basically, to the day that there was a decisive game. Um, now in, in classical, I should, I should say, because obviously in rapid, there's been wins. So I guess the first thing I, I want to say as somebody who's myself has only recently gotten into chess is that these kind of world chess, these kind of world chess championship matches, um, they're more like war. And typically when you're following a super tournament, you're basically following battles. But what you're going to be seeing in these next few games is Magnus and Nepomniachi are both looking for holds in the other's preparation something in their strategy. They're looking at something to bite so that they can adapt. Both of them have big teams that they're working with. They have supercomputers. They have a whole like country's worth of assets so that they can use at their disposal. And so um, that that's kind of where the interest is. And I think this, this kind of mindset is very important for the first game because we really saw like hints of what the strategy are for both sides. So Nepomniachi, he opened with E4. People were kind of debating, is he going to play E4, C4, D4? Um, for newer players, e4 is kind of a more open game, d4 is more of a positional closed game, and c4 is kind of just saying, I don't want to play so much on theory, I want to play more on my ideas versus your ideas. Uh, knight f3 is similar, kind of saying you can transpose into a lot of things, you're very flexible, you're happy also just kind of play more flexibly, less about concept, uh, sorry, less about, um, direct opening preparation and more about conceptual ideas so that's actually why magnus likes to play with c4 a lot he's played it a couple times in the world championship so i think that's important to note but um, magnus he responds to e4 with e5 and we very quickly got a mainline Roy lopez so people were wondering what's going to happen Roy lopez is um it's the most popular opening in chess probably ever e4 e5 and it's very direct and uh 
this has been analyzed uh, to death. There's theory, there's theoretical lines that go 20, 30 moves deep that grandmasters know very well. And uh, that's what makes this kind of thing so interesting if you're a newer player, because about on move eight, um, first, uh, Nepomniachi, he played this move H3. Uh, and again, I don't want to talk too much about specific moves, but what this is basically does is it's called the anti-martial. Um, a little story about the martial attack. The martial attack is named for uh, Frank James Marshall, who's an American champion. He's one of the greatest players of like the early 1900s, and uh, he actually prepared this opening for like six years. He waited for the right time to use it, and he used it on um, future world champion uh, Jose Raul Capablanca. Actually, at the time, he might have been the world champion. Um, nonetheless, uh, he used it against him in a game actually lost, but it's such a powerful opening um, where basically black sacrifices a pawn but gets uh, two bishops pointing at the king. Every piece developed, whereas white is basically completely stuck with development. It has a pretty vulnerable king. And uh, I actually read somewhere that in uh, correspondence chess, which is like, you know, you have like two days to make a move. You can use like, um, you can use like databases and stuff like that. Basically in, in that game mode, the martial attack, I think is like a force draw or some, something weird like that. Um, that's probably an exaggeration, but the point is that it's been analyzed to death. And um, I think as Fabiano Caruana said, white has no ideas. Um, and that's something I want to talk about in a little bit too, uh, about like who to listen to. Um, which broadcast to follow, because I have my own opinions. Um, now, nevertheless, uh, and this is actually, so after h3, I don't know if you've looked at the games, if you haven't, but Magnus plays a really surprising move, and he plays in knight a5 uh, on move 8. And uh, this is a surprise, because this is only move 8, and he basically goes into a sideline that's unbelievably rare, played only a handful of times um, by players. There's actually one Grandmaster, uh, Alexei Bezgadov, who's known for basically being one of the only top flight players in the 90s to play like uh, E4, C5 after the Sicilian to play A3. This is kind of his version of the Sicilian. He actually wrote a book on it. So he was a very creative opening player and he played this line. Other than that though, you won't find any Super Grandmasters playing this line, so it's a surprise. Magnus played it basically instantly, which means that he was well prepared. And uh, it, he basically offers a pawn uh, in the center uh, for some compensation of a lot of development. Uh, Nepo took... And uh, what transpired was uh, some doubled pawns. Magnus had the bishop pair. And uh, this is where we kind of go to strategy. Why is Magnus playing like this? In, and, and I'll allude to this in the next game. He sacrifices a pawn, more than a pawn actually, in the second game. And um, what Magnus is basically doing is he's saying, I would rather give up material at the cost of initiative than try to play a normal game because I think he understands that where Nepomniachi can pose the most problems is by having the move, having the initiative, playing for tempo, and so he's basically playing these kinds of openings that uh, give him the, the driver's wheel. Um, there is a cost to playing like this, as I'll talk about a little bit in my Game 2 uh, analysis. Which again, I don't want to go too deep in the moves. I want to talk more about ideas. Um, but the cost of this is that if Magnus does overextend and Nepo plays good moves, he will be in trouble because his strategy is... And he's not playing bad moves per se, but he's playing moves that... Um, that if he doesn't know exactly what he's doing, he doesn't know the ideas. Of course, he's the GOAT. He's the greatest ever, so he does know what he's doing. But, you know, if he does overextend, if he does get a little too greedy, if he does play outside of his comfort zone a little bit, he could be in a lot of trouble. That almost happened in the second game. But in this game, I mean, he played everything pretty quick. Uh, Nepomniachi looked extremely surprised. Um, and uh, pretty quickly, he got into this position. And they were both prepped up. I mean, they both played pretty much instantly until about move 14, 15. 
Nepo played this king f1 and then Magnus moved a rook to the b file. Basically, this first game, if you're a beginner, you should not play chess like the way that these guys play. But you know they're they're two of the best in the world for a reason. And um, actually, then there was some inaccurate play by Nepomniachi. Magnus got some chances maybe to go for something, but wasn't really enough. It kind of petered out into this rook and knight endgame that um, it required some really weird moves, and, and Magnus never really had anything concrete, and the game ended in a draw. So game one, we're at one half, one half, and um, what are some of the takeaways? I mean, it's kind of hard to say, um, but Nepomniachi did look like he was pretty badly outprepared, um, and yet Magnus did give him a chance for this draw and wasn't really able to... Uh, to play further so the first game was a 45 move draw we're at one half one half um it wasn't that much of a remarkable game it was one of the more exciting games though there was kind of a lot of uh interesting analysis going on um but all in all it was uh it was still one half one half uh it was kind of just again from an ideas perspective magnus showed that he's very well prepared he kind of played something to throw nepo off he kind of is on he knows now that nepo was prepared e4 e5 he's prepared to re lopez he knows that much he got some information out of that and um he managed to just play accurately hold and uh ended in a draw um nepo actually just said a couple of minutes ago actually because i watched a press conference that um you know the state of theory in uh, 2021 is that uh if white and black both play accurately chess is a draw um who knows if that's really true? I mean, I think it depends on the opening, of course, and a lot of other things. But basically, the point is, you know, if you can't induce mistakes from your opponent, then you're just going to draw the game. And that's obviously not very fun for spectators to watch. So, um, basically, it's probably going to be a lot of draws in this game. Uh, sorry, there's gonna, probably going to be a lot of draws in uh, in this match. Um, but game two, uh, there was very high chances for something more than a draw. And Magnus had the white pieces. And uh, he opened with uh, with d4, um, which was an interesting choice because Nepomniachi is known for the Grunfeld. The Grunfeld is, is considered one of the most solid and, and and sharp responses to 1d4, where black gets a lot of counterplay, gets a, a lot of activity, a lot of options, uh, very creative play, very dynamic play. It's uh, And for somebody who's an expert like Nepomniachi, it's kind of a bold decision. So people were kind of curious, is, is Magnus going to go into this Grunfeld? Is, is maybe going to be some transposition? So... People were following closely, and interestingly, it was actually Nepo who decided not to play the Grunfeld. He he allowed a uh, Nimzo Indian. Magnus declined by playing this uh, on move three. He played knight f3. That's called like the Nimzo Indian declined or the Bogo Indian after the bishop checks, but there was no bishop check. So pawn in the center, and then here Magnus transposed into the Catalan opening. And uh, again, without getting too technical, what's important to know is that Magnus very rarely plays the Catalan. He's more of a Queen's Gambit decline player. Uh, he doesn't really play this at all. There's not that many games in the database with him playing this. Um, he does have a notable game, actually, from many years ago that I, I've actually analyzed when I was maybe considering playing the uh, the Catalan, where he played against, I think, Vasily Ivanchuk and had this like beautiful positional masterpiece against him before he was even like 2,700. Um, but I, I, at least to my knowledge, he's not really that much of a Catalan player. Um, but we had the Catalan on the board. And the basic idea of the Catalan is... You basically sacrifice a pawn at some point for a lot of activity, a lot of dynamic play along the light square diagonal, uh, the large light square diagonal, I should stress, the h188 diagonal. And uh, that's basically what happened in the game. Um, there was a pawn sacrificed, uh, and uh, Nepo, he had this prepared, 
And he played this, uh, also he played on move A, just like Magnus, or I guess it was uh, end of move 7, he played this very aggressive B5. And in the all the analysts, 2700 analysts were saying they've all looked at this before. And uh, Magnus showed he's extremely well prepared. It's kind of a narrative that I've said myself on the podcast, which is maybe a little inaccurate, um, according to his peers, that um, Magnus isn't as well prepped as some of his compatriots, like, uh, not compatriots, he's not as well prepared as some of his buddies, like uh, Anish Giri, for example. Um, but he was extremely well prepared. This was already the second game in a row. Uh, Nepo wasted a lot of time these next few moves trying to figure out what to do. Uh, already he played c6 on move 8, which was not the best move. By far was not the best move. So basically, somehow he, he must have missed something. And uh, Magnus was basically playing in preparation until something like move 14, 15. Um, and he seems to have missed the opportunity um, from the engine's perspective. So when he was on his own, he played something that was slightly inaccurate, though. From a practical perspective, it was kind of hard to find a, a plan. And uh, what ended up happening in this game was uh, Magnus basically sacrificed the exchange and the pawn to have a fat knight on uh, on d6, an octopus even. Um, the octopus is, uh, is a reference to uh, this disgusting knight that Gary Kasparov had in a World Chess Championship win against Anatoly Karpov to win the title. He had like a huge knight. I, I think he had the black pieces though. He had a huge knight. I think it was also on d3. Um, and, uh, I might be wrong, but he basically had an octopus. And so, um, yeah, Magnus gets an octopus. It's basically worth a rook. And, uh, somewhere in this game, uh, Nepo, according to the engine was something like one and a half points better, which is pretty significant. And then he plays this move C3 at some point, um, which I, I've watched every minute of every game. And even I kind of felt like this was sort of a cop out is, it allows Magnus to simplify everything quite nicely. And so I think basically what he was saying with this move was that I'm okay just, you know, kind of trading everything off, playing, you know, Rook for a knight, um, a nice knight, and trying to take my chances there. Although simplifying actually showed that not only was it ended up being uh, even, there's even a point where Magnus might have been even ever so slightly better. Um, so after a bunch of trades happened, the trade of the bishops, the knight stayed on, on d6. We basically had this position where um, black is up the exchange, but had a much worse pawn structure, and uh, it was really only white that could really go for something. And again, it's probably a draw with perfect play, and they played very perfectly. But at some point, basically, Magnus allows this exchange on, on d6, a rook for a knight, and it ends up being a, a, a completely dead draw. So that's basically uh, that's basically game two. Um, I wouldn't say it wasn't interesting. I thought it was actually very interesting, but... Um, he basically ended up in this endgame where Magnus was up a pawn with rooks, which in the Grandmaster level is a complete draw um, at, you know, anything above, anything below like a Master level, probably the side without a pawn will lose. But uh, Grandmasters know these kinds of things uh, very well. That's why they're Grandmasters. And so it ended up being a complete draw. For example, Nigel Short, who's vice president of FIDE, he had the exact same endgame. I think extremely similar position actually with Magnus in their last over-the-board game ever in like 2010. So it's pretty common, um, and it's 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 a draw if you know what you're doing, and of course they know what they're doing. So the game ends in a, in a draw, game two. And uh, what are the main takeaways from from this one? Um, well, a lot of pundits were saying that you know, well, Nepo was clearly better at one point, uh, but if you don't have an engine, it's it's really hard to actually find like what the plans are to prove that he's better. 
And so from a practical standpoint, actually, um, it was a pretty complicated game. That's all that could be said. Uh, Magnus even, there's a really good moment actually in game two. You could find this on YouTube where the mic is actually, there's actually a mic at the at the table, I think for the first time, like ever. And uh, Nepo and, and Magnus, I should mention, are, they're, they're, I won't say they're good friends, but they're, they're homies. Like, you know, they've, they've analyzed chess together. They've known each other for a very long time. They're very friendly with each other. And so there's actually um, kind of atypical the World Chess Championship match. They kind of sat at the board for like two minutes after game two and, and talked about their game. And uh, p- the audio was actually picked up. So uh, <laughs> Nepo, for example, he said this was probably the worst game ever played in a World Chess Championship, which is just definitely not true. Um, it was a very fun game to watch, actually. And then Magnus said, I have no idea who is better or worse at any point of the game. So it was just a crazy game. Both of them seemed to have a lot of respect for the other, and they both kind of understood that it was just a very hard game to play, very hard game to win. Uh, and it's 1-1. So going into game three, Jan Nepomniachi has uh, he has the white pieces again, and people are wondering, what's he going to do? Uh, is he going to stick to E4? Maybe he'll switch it up. Maybe he'll abandon the Rui Lopez. He actually goes for Rui Lopez again. And this game was played a couple hours ago, um, and he does go for the Rui Lopez again. This time, though, instead of playing this h3, he plays a4. And a4 is, uh, is I think, the in modern day, is probably the most common move. Um, if you watch any Agamotor videos, uh, I mean, a4 in that position, basically all the recent Lopez videos, you'll basically find that uh, it's extremely common because c3 allows this martial attack, like I said. So we had a4, and what, what, what ensued was a very, very complicated theoretical struggle and Magnus seemed to be in preparation up until about move 20, actually, uh, which is very impressive. Um, it shows that he's, well, he played this, he played A5 at one point, which some commentators were saying, well, you might have a long-term weakness, but he actually held on very precisely. There was actually no issues. And um, somewhere around the middle game, uh, basically, he Magnus pushes in the center and it becomes a bishop endgame, and, and that was it. Not really that exciting. The least exciting of the three games by far. Uh, kind of once everything traded off, uh, there was there was no hope, and they agreed to draw pretty quickly. And uh, this game actually, um, I think it was only something like 41 moves. Yeah, basically as soon as they reached time control, they just agreed to draw. So, um, And then they had a doping test. Um, and again, uh, Nepo looked out-prepared a little bit, uh, but nothing so serious that it really matters. He did look like he was a little bit out of his uh, preparation. He looked a little surprised, but again, it's nothing that I think is is significant enough to you know call home about. Uh, I don't really think there's there's any issues in that regard. So again, um, what, what to take away from this game? What to take away from the match in general? Uh, so far, Magnus has looked like a world champion, and uh, Jan has looked like a, a really good challenger, I have to say. He's he's played very accurately. I've been very impressed with the way he uses his time. Um, he's usually been ahead on the clock, despite being uh, out of book um, at the start. You know, usually by the time they get to move 40, he's actually usually ahead on time. Particularly in, in the second game, uh, Magnus used a lot of time, despite being completely prepared at a certain point, um, well beyond Jan. So I think it's really a testament to how good his intuition is. Um, and how strong he is at finding those good moves. Um, a lot has been said about his resilience, how he used to not play so like well under pressure, but I think um, Jan is showing that he's still in his true candidate's form, that he really is, has taken a big step, and uh, it's a lot of fun to watch uh, from a spectator's point of view. And um, 
I guess what else to take away? Uh, I think it's been a great match so far. I've had more fun watching this than the than the Karana match. Um, even though I think at this point the Karana match is also three draws, but I think there is maybe a little more violence overall because we've only had really like one crazy game so far. Um, now look, game three they have a rest day tomorrow. That's why I'm recording this right now. Um, you know, Magnus said he's going to probably watch some basketball. Uh, Jan didn't really answer the question that I don't think about what he's going to be doing on the rest day. But Magnus said he's going to be watching soccer and and and. He's going to be uh, watching some basketball. I think he said Warriors Clippers. So he has his own plans, certainly. And um, I, I think maybe, you know, they, after such a violent game yesterday, maybe neither one really wanted to reveal too much. Um, but again, going into match strategy, uh, what have we learned? Um, well, like I said before, it looks like Magnus is uh, extremely well prepared. Uh, and it looks like the, the central strategy for both is going to be on Nepo's side, uh, he's kind of just looking for any any hole he can get in 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 uh, in ma- you know any slight inaccuracy he's trying to provoke. Um, because this position that that he got in game three, for example, in the Rui Lopez, uh, any small mistake by Magnus would have led to a, a sizable advantage. But Magnus played uh, uh, according to the engines like one of the most accurate games in the history of classical chess. Um, <laughs> at least in the World Championship, which is, like, insane. They ended in a draw, but Magnus found every move that he needed to find, uh, played basically a perfect game, and so Ma- and so Nepo wasn't really able to get those weaknesses. So he's played the Rui Lopez already in two games. There's 11 more matches. Um, the, the question now is, is he going to stick to the Rui Lopez? What else does he have prepared? Is he going to switch it up? Is he going to keep looking for holes? Most top-level GMs that are not David Vizgon uh, think that he's going to have to switch it up. And the reason why he has to switch it up is just because uh, whatever he's been looking for in terms of weaknesses, he hasn't been getting. Um, as for Magnus, I think Magnus should be, you know, pretty happy. He started with black, so he's had two black games, one white game. Now coming off a rest day, he's probably not going to work too much on his chest. But with that being said, I, I think he he still has a lot of tricks up his sleeve. And um, his idea basically to to just take away the initiative from Nepo and try to play that way has been working. Um even in game three, which basically petered out into a draw very quickly, uh, Nepo played uh, on move 21. He played h3, which kind of was kind of like a serve, like a tennis serve, uh, just just giving the ball back to Magnus rather than to play a bit more directly. Um, though admittedly, the move that he needed to play in that position for a sl- very slight advantage was very hard to find, dare I say impossible to find um, for, uh, for a human being. He had to play like queen d3 or something like that. Um, so yeah, um, that's basically where we're at right now. We're three games in, um, and I, I want to emphasize, like I said before, uh, match strategy is not the same as uh, like a game strategy. They're they're okay with draws in the short term. Uh, there's going to be a lot of draws anyway. There's already a ton of draws at the high level, but especially here, if there's a draw where they find a hole in preparation or something like that, they're usually very happy. Um, if there's a, if there's a, an opening that poses some problems halfway through the tournament, you can bet that they're going to stick with that. I'll, an example I'll give is, um, Vichy Anand, um, basically used the, the, some very sharp line of the slob defense twice, um, against, uh, Vladimir Kramnik 2008 and won both games. I think it was game three and game five. He used the same line, um, different move order, um, like in the middle game and, uh, Found some his team found great ideas and they won two games and basically gave him a convincing lead that he never had to worry about afterwards, and that was against the reigning world champion. So, 
they're both going to be looking for ideas. Um, any, any, any bait, any, any smell of blood they're going to be looking for and they're going to be trying to use. So that's kind of why we're at three draws. Um, and I do think that uh, both sides have shown that they're able to, to kind of get advantageous positions. Um, the kind of the question now is is it going to be enough to convert because even a, a half a point one point advantage at this level um, these guys will be able to find counterplay or they will at least be they'll at least be able to find ways to kind of neutralize their opponent's chances so yeah I mean chess is tough uh, I don't really know what to say beyond that um, but it's been an interesting match so uh, yeah let me know what you think about the match so far I've been enjoying it a lot. Um, oh, I guess another thing that I that I should uh, that I should talk about. Um, there's a bunch of different broadcasts, and um, I don't really know what the best solution is. Now, I'm not sponsored by any of these guys. I'm sponsored by Aim Chess, um, which is a division of the Play Magnus Group, which is Chess Twenty Four is part of them. Um, but I, I'm not sponsored by Chess Twenty Four. I I don't think I I owe them any. <laughs> Allegiance. Um, I can say that I've I've watched basically every broadcast that's out there, um, and the one that's impressed me the most um, overall has been the Chess.com broadcast uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think the production value is very nice. It's very relaxed. It's kind of it's you know rather than have like the the zoom zoom cameras like it's been for all the other World Championships, um, they kind of just have uh, three guys sitting on sofas and, and talking about the games, kind of like how it would feel if you were watching like football on Thanksgiving, for example, with, with your friends. Like that's kind of the vibe that they're trying to give. Um, and it, it's really nice. Uh, another thing I'll say is that Fabiano Caruana, who was the challenger three years ago, he's there. He drew 12 straight games with Magnus, uh, had really good chances in, in, in uh, some of those games. And um, yeah, I mean, he knows how to play Magnus, basically. He knows how to play Magnus at equal levels, um, and he has. So what better person, I think, basically the best person in the world to have right now in terms of analysis. And I don't know, typically at the highest level, um, this was a criticism of the Chess24 broadcasts for many years, um, particularly in the 2018 World Championship. I remember this being a, a criticism from people who were getting in the game, like myself at the time, that um, you know the analysis was so high level, back when it was Peter Svidler and Jan Gustafsson and, and, and those guys, who I actually, I really love their analysis, and Lawrence Trent. Um, people complained that the analysis was too high level. And now Chess24, they obviously have their big fancy studio, which is fantastic. Um, I think they really set the bar for production value. Um, but I think that this is a little different because you ha you do have the low-level analysis, but then Fabiano, he's able to communicate very deep ideas about chess to um, a a wider audience at a very um, understandable level, which is super impressive. I did not know that he had that kind of like pedagogical ability. Um, but also, I you know, not to stereotype chess players, but I think chess players can often like seem a little nerdy and a little awkward, a little introverted. And you really have seen over the last three games that Fabi has gotten out of his shell a lot. He's kind of uh, thrown little little uh, roasts at uh at uh, Robert Hess, for example. So it's it's been a lot of fun. And um, the, the only criticism I would have is that there's way too many commercial breaks, like more so than any of the other broadcasts by far. So typically what I do at that point is I'll switch over to Hikaru's or, or the Chess24 um, broadcast. I also like Yudit Prolgar's and, and Anish Giri's analysis a lot. It's, it's been very, very uh, insightful. Anish particularly has been... Also, I mean, he knows how to play Magnus at equal levels. He had this miraculous run in the candidates. If the candidates had just been played at one shot, 
um, in 2021. I mean, Anish probably would have been the uh, the challenger instead because he, he just was playing that well. So he's been in, in very impressive form. And um, I don't really think you could go wrong. There's a ton of other streams. Ben Feingold has a very fun stream. I've, I've been like checking into that every now and then. But um, I, I really have been blown away by, uh, by Fabiano. And, uh, so I'm going to be sticking to that one, I think. So that's kind of my recommendation. Um, if that's the kind of vibe you're looking for, obviously, if you're looking for something a bit more technical then there's other stuff, but, um, I think that the chess.com broadcast really strikes a nice balance between, uh, informative and educational and, and very intense chess, but also being also at the same time laid back, relaxed and, and fun. A lot of, lot of dry humor, and so it, it's been pretty good. Um, I don't think any of the broadcasts are perfect. Uh, there's been a lot of problems with the DGT board, a lot of technical issues um, across all the broadcasts. Uh, and so Hikaru's is actually really good because it's kind of him just sitting with his camera just, you know, talking about the game. He, I, I learned that he's a Stargate SG-1 FM. Uh, I, I freaking loved that TV show when I was growing up. It's like it's the reason why I actually study astrophysics, so... That was a, a fun fact, or I learned on game one that Wesley So is a Brooklyn Nets fan. So you see, I'm learning all these things, uh, like all these other tentacles uh, tied to my life, my early life, and and now it's like uh, that. That's just been really funny. So that's been a pretty laid back stream. So I, I kind of bounce back between everything, and uh, otherwise, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if if classical chess is ever going to be that appealing to uh, to a mass audience. Unfortunately, I think that. Um, it's it's difficult to expect that almost, and uh, because because like I said, right now they're looking for holes, they're looking for weaknesses. I think if we want more decisive games, the only solution will be instead of you know two hours for the first bunch of moves, you should have like thirty minutes. Um, but I, there's a lot of tradition to the to the way it's been played, and I think that it's it's not yet time to switch that maybe if we have another 12 straight draws in this one and then the next one then maybe we can talk about it uh certainly i think the nightmare scenario even though um chess by the numbers a recent guest on my podcast did the i think it's like a one in ten thousand chance of this ever happening but like to have a world chess championship for example decided in the armageddon i think that's that's kind of a nightmare um that that's no way to to decide a championship in my opinion uh, I think actually one of the Shahadis, I, I don't I don't remember which one, maybe it's not them, but somebody, one of the, I'm pretty sure it's one of the Shahadi siblings, um, suggested that uh, the tie breaks, in case of, uh, you know, a bunch of draws or whatever, be played before, um, so that if you know that you've lost your tie break, like let's say it's a tie break blitz game at the start of the match, it, that way if you know that you've lost that battle, you know on game 12 or whatever, you have to go all out. It's kind of kind of an interesting way to flip the psychology, but... You know, people can talk about this for hours. Lord knows that I've talked about this a bunch on my podcast. Uh, I don't really think there's any direct way to solve it. I think it's kind of a wait and see. Although I will say, I'm pretty sure that there's going to be a decisive, at least one decisive game in this match. Uh, it just seems like it. Um, Magnus seems to be in the mood to overextend, and this has been a problem that he's had. So he's, his uh, his uh, two decisive losses um, in Classical at the World Championship, um, I think, He's been seven and two in decisive games, but those two games, I think both of them were a consequence of, of just overextending completely. Um, and he's had some near near losses, and it's all come down to basically the overextension. So yeah, basically uh, that that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, all in all, if I had to give them grades, I would give Nepo like a B, and I'd give Magnus like an A minus. 
Um, Magnus definitely has looked like a world champion. Uh, he's been very, very professional. Uh, he's, he's, he's been very impressive. His, his abilities, um, the, the kind of calculations he's found over the board, for example, in game two, he took a huge deep think and then he basically found the, the combination he needed to at least get a playable position, which was, uh, which was extremely impressive. And, um, Nepo on the other hand, I think he, he's shown why he's such a brilliant player, why he's there. But I also think that, uh, something is, is not good in his preparation. And, um, fortunately it's early in the match. And, uh, you know, it's only half of the story. For example, Fabiano, has he wrote it recently about how many holes he had in his recent preparation for the World Championship. Um, he talked about earlier on this uh, Game 3 stream that he apparently he had prepared the Rui Lopez and he had a bunch of holes in what he had as his main line. He had a bunch of holes um, that could have been losses. He also apparently had a... Uh, had, uh, <laughs> like a forced loss in one of his lines that never came about. Um, so this is only half the story. Preparation only gets you so far, and, and Nepo has been has been brilliant over the board otherwise, and uh, if a little passive, um, but that's part of the match strategy, like I said. Magnus is really looking to make Nepo be passive and looking to find those psychological weaknesses, uh, and that's been working very well. So... It's going to be interesting to see how Nepo switches it up in terms of openings. Is he going to keep playing E4? Is he going to keep playing uh, the Rui Lopez specifically? Might he switch to an Italian? And um, I hope we see a decisive game soon because if it's game 10 and there's still not a decisive game, it's probably just going to be two more draws. Whereas if uh, if we have like a game four as a decisive victory with White for Magnus, then Nepo is going to go like uh, crazy in the next few games because he's going to need to strike back for the win. And that's really where you can see the chaos. So I am, I'm predicting a win. I just don't know when that's going to be. Um, in any case, I think that both players look very deserving um, of the title. Uh, they've played basically on equal footing. Uh, Nepo's had the highest engine advantage of something like 1.6 or something, according to Sese at some point. So yeah, that's basically it. That's my super summary of the first three games. I'll, uh, I'll bring another one during the next rest day. I hope, I don't know, maybe this isn't fun for people. Um, maybe I'll archive these and, uh, and after maybe if it's not a big hit, but I decided to try it. Um, kind of something laid back for me, take about half an hour to talk about the games, ramble a little bit. Um, once again, if you like what he, you hear, you want to support me at all, uh, check out my Patreon at, uh, patreon.com slash 64 podcast. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. 64 podcast, uh, is basically the same thing as my handle. Um, please leave a review if you like what you hear. Uh, I, I work really hard on the podcast. Uh, this is a little more impromptu. So if, if this seems a bit lazy, I'm not going to blame you. Um, plus it's been, it's been a long day. I've been basically doing chess all since the morning and, uh, now I'm unwinding with a nice, nice beer. Um, I just lit the candles for Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah, everyone. It's currently uh, Sunday, November 28th. It's the first night of Hanukkah all around the world. So if you celebrate Hanukkah, uh, I wish you a very happy Hanukkah and good presents. And uh, I hope you have uh, peace. And uh, basically, I'm just going to wish everybody who's listening um, around the world, I wish you uh, a healthy and uh, happy rest of your year. Uh, obviously, there's all this stuff with the Omicron variant right now. Maybe this will be a time capsule in the next two years or something, but um, it's a bunch of hysteria now over this new uh, COVID variant. So I hope I hope that's uh, just panic and nothing serious. Um, and uh yeah, I'm praying for everybody's health and happiness as always. Um, thanks so much for listening to the Super Summary, and uh, I'll see you guys in a couple of days.
So take care, be well, and uh, we will talk soon. Have a good night.